everything you're doing, you're choosing to do. You need to understand that. Like, never forget that you're choosing to do this. And at any point, you can just choose not to. You don't have to. Just walk away from anything. There might be some consequences, and more often, there's not. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. I'm your host, Eric Wenzel, as always. Feeding Curiosity is a podcast that explores the precarity of human experience, and we challenge ourselves and others to think, question, and synthesize wherever our curiosity takes us. It is through these conversations that we hope to provide blueprints for others to learn and lead a more fulfilling life. In today's episode, we are joined by Derek Sivers. Derek is a creative thinker who's quite hard to pit down, and Rather than explaining who he is, here's a short list of what he's done. He has been a musician, a producer, a circus performer, entrepreneur, TED speaker, and more recently, writer and book publisher. If I could sum up who Derek was, he is someone of a philosopher and an introspective person who's looking to push his thinking in ways he hasn't explored yet. He won't hold any belief or assumption too tightly. Originally a professional musician and circus clown, Derek created CD Baby in 1998. It became the largest seller of independent music online with 100 million in sales for 150,000 musicians. In 2008, Derek sold CD Baby for 22 million, giving the proceeds to a charitable trust for music education. He's a frequent speaker on the TEDx conference, or TED conference, sorry, and with more than 5 million views on his talks. And you can reach Derek over at Sivers.org. And our entire conversation circles around creativity, self-reliance, learning, and just dropping your assumptions. And for me, this is a huge podcast because I've listened to Derek and have followed his work since listening to his podcast on the Tim Ferriss show. And to be able to have a conversation with Derek in this long format was truly a treat. And I am truly blown away for his generosity to sit down with me and have this incredibly wide ranging conversation. And also to share someone like Derek with you, the listeners of Feeding Curiosity. So without further ado, Please enjoy this conversation with Derek Sivers. Welcome back to another episode of Feeding Curiosity. On today's episode, we are joined by Derek Sivers. Hey, Derek. Hey. This is awesome. Thanks for making the time and pushing my question asking abilities to the limit that I hadn't known was possible. (laughs) (laughs) Glad I could help. So for that Give us a quick little bio of like, what have you been doing and just what, maybe what you're focusing on right now. So paint the picture. (laughs) Who am I and what do I do? Yeah. All right. Um, (laughs) Let's see. I've had a few phases. So first I was a professional musician for 15 years from the age of uh, 14 until 30. I was pretty much nothing but a musician. I was completely obsessed with just being a professional musician. And so in my 15 years of being a professional musician, I spent 10 of that working in a circus, being a ringleader MC of a circus and uh, touring around the country doing that. I moved to New York City. I played guitar for a Japanese pop star. I was a professional session musician around New York City, playing on people's records and stage and producing people's records and started a record label. And I did lots of stuff in there. And one of the things I did was start a little online record store, which was meant just to sell my CD, 
Uh, but then my friends in New York asked if I could sell their CD through my little store. And I said yes. And I accidentally created the largest seller of independent music on the web called CD Baby. And that ran for 10 years with like a 150,000 musicians and 85 employees and millions in sales and all that stuff. It was way bigger than I ever wanted it to be. So after 10 years of doing that, I was personally done. So 10 years ago, what, uh, 11 years ago, I sold the company and became a writer, speaker, thinker kind of guy. I <laughs> spoke at the TED conference a few times. I released a book. I've got three more books coming and that brings us up to today. That's awesome. And it, I think, you know, part of that story is just the arc of accidentally becoming <laughs> is why I think it's so interesting. And then just the ability you have to to unpack all of those things, to be really clear about what, what it is you are and what it is that you aren't, if that makes sense. Well, some things in life are intentional and some things are, right? I mm -hmm. think that happens to everybody, right? It's like, you know, we, we choose some of our destiny. Some of it was through our own efforts and steering and some mm -hmm. things just plop into our lap or, or, or happen in, in a bad way. You know, somebody's pursuing a career as an athlete and they get into a car crash and, mm -hmm. you know, that spins them off into a different direction and that's how they became a lawyer or, you know, it's, yeah. it's you never know like which, which aspects of what you're pursuing are, are, um, going to happen or not. So yeah, some of it, like the, the, like speaking at Ted, there was a time where I felt, it, okay, so I sold the, com I sold CD Baby in 2008 mm -hmm. and I felt like I had peaked, like this is it. Mm -hmm. I sold the company for millions of dollars. This is what's going to go onto my gravestone is like he did CD Baby and not much since, you know, mm -hmm. and I was like in my thirties. I was like thinking this is it. And I spent a couple of years feeling pretty lost until I got a a new exciting idea. Like I want to speak at the TED conference, like not TEDx. I want to speak at the big main stage TED. Yeah, I want them to invite me. Like that got me inspired. That got me to like jump out of my chair and get into action. It was like the most exciting idea I'd had for a while. So that whole thing happened very deliberately with great great intention. But mm -hmm. yeah, like starting a business and all that was a total accident. Wow. So I guess for TED. The does getting into TED require some sort of writing or does someone have to find you? I don't even, I'm just curious how that process goes. Like, or is there like a committee where certain people like say, yeah, this guy should be able to talk there. <laughs> I'm not sure. I think it's pretty ad hoc and they, I think they keep it ad hoc so that people don't try to game the system, the system or whatever. But mm -hmm. um, in my case, I was an attendee of the conference. Like I'd already kind of bought my ticket to attend. Mm -hmm. And then they asked attendees if they wanted, if anybody wanted to give a talk. So I proposed an idea and they said, yes, you give this talk. And that was it. And then I did it three times in one year. So I spoke at the oh, wow. TED conference in Oxford, England, mm -hmm. and then in India and then in California. Um, wow. Very yeah, cool. That, that, that was back in 2009. I haven't done it since. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a, it's an interesting thing too, especially for someone, you know, could quotes relatively young to have sold a company and be like, yep, that's the, there's my high watermark. And then how right. do you, how do you have the rest of your life to go through to, I, I guess, I'd maybe live in the shadow of that? It's uh right. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I thought was going to happen. But so it's kind of cool 
when actually it's funny now most people know me through my writing and books and podcasts but there was a time in 2010 11 12 where it felt like everybody that knew me knew me through ted like everybody knew me as that ted speaker guy because mm. my my three talks all were quite successful and got millions of views and yeah. on the site and whatever and and people just knew me as the ted guy and so they would ask so what did you do before Ted? And I was like, <laughs> yes, that was, that was such a cool question to hear because like, you know, like I just told you, I thought that CD baby was going to be like the last good thing I ever did. So yeah. it was such a cool thing to be known for the, the next thing. And yeah, I hope I, I'm 50 now. So I hope I make another couple <laughs> transitions like that. That'd be fun. Yeah. That's really cool. I, I think that's like one of the more interesting things in today's world where people can have like second lives almost or third lives or fourth lives yeah. of different career paths where it's all of a sudden it's like, yeah, I did this thing and then I left it all behind and now I do this thing. But yeah. someone can find you at many points in that trajectory and then be like, wait, what else did he do? Why is he here? Wait, hold on. Right. <laughs> and then being able to unpack that story because I think that's really, it's like the idea of a generalized specialist, which we'll get into later. But we'll kind of back into the writing aspect of what you do now because that's what you, your focus is. So it's, what does your process look like? And then like when you get stuck or unfocused, how do you like reset yourself? Okay, so I, I don't think writing is much different than any other pursuits. Meaning, I don't think I have like a writing process that's different than any other process of getting stuck. Like actually when you ask that question, I can imagine myself getting stuck more on some programming things I've done. I get really stuck on some technical programming things. I just can't figure out how to make it work. But with writing, I think it's the same as anything else. Like when you get stuck on something, you just try to break down this big problem down into smaller, more specific problems. Mm -hmm. Right? Like I think that's the same with anything in life. Like, if you're stuck on a creative problem, whether it's making music or whatever you do, there's always a way to like flip it over and consider the opposite mm -hmm. of whatever you're doing. That's just like kind of a, a typical tool in the toolbox of people doing anything creative. It's like, <laughs> let me try reversing it. Let me try doing the opposite of whatever I'm doing. <clears throat> let me take a 90 degree turn. Now I'll take a 180. You know. On the other hand, if you're having a stylistic problem, like you're just sick of the sound of your own voice. And I don't mean, you know, your, your voice box, but I mean, whatever you're doing artistically, then you can always just pretend that you're somebody, whether it's your role model or just something else, and you can do whatever they would do. So for years I was a singer and my voice teacher would teach me, like I would go in and work on a new song with him and he'd say like, okay, now sing it to me like you're sneaking up on me with a knife behind your back and about to kill me. <laughs> so I would. He said, okay, now sing it to me like your Grover from Sesame Street. Whatever. You know, it's like you don't have to be yourself. You can mm -hmm. you can be someone else when you're just doing something creative and just trying to uh, if you're feeling stuck, you can always do it a different way. And then with life decisions, I've recently found a new way of making or getting through major life decisions when I'm feeling stuck. Mm -hmm is to describe my problem to a mentor, especially if it's someone who doesn't know me at all. So that then I have to summarize my entire context to a disinterested, right? Mm -hmm. Like just imagine 
you're going through a major business problem, right? And, and somebody says, okay, I'll give you five minutes on the phone with Richard Branson. You go, oh my God, Richard Branson, oh my God. And you're only going to have five minutes. So now Richard Branson knows nothing about you. You have to summarize your entire situation and the problem you're going through down to like a one minute explanation of context and a one minute question. Yeah. How would you do that? So to respect their time, you have to be as succinct as possible. And what I found is that by doing this exercise, by reducing the problem down to its essence, the answer becomes clear without you having to actually go contact some successful mentor. Mm-hmm. No need for answer. Like just going through that exercise usually makes the answer pretty obvious when you look at it like that. Yeah, that's really interesting because it allows you to distance yourself from the problem then instead of having the context of like, oh yeah, this is why this is, like I'm hung up on this. You have to just take it for its root elements basically and say, oh, then it's like the, you know, slap yourself on the forehead kind of thing. <laughs> right. Or it's, it's just interesting to see it stripped of all emotion. That's something, so it's better talking to a stranger than talking to yeah. a good friend. If your good friends care about you, they know you, you, they can kind of rely on your background and context. But when you're having to tell something to a stranger, then you really have to summarize more than ever. And uh, when you really summarize your problem, but you know, that's, that's for a certain kind of problem. Yeah, That's like, you know, if you're a painter and you're stuck on something painting wise, maybe this approach won't help. But I think for major life decisions or maybe even business decisions, you could look at that. But then I, I really do enjoy the opposite of uh, the first thing I said, where it's like taking something and flipping it upside out and asking yourself the opposite. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's worth noting like that, not every, you know, mental framework or mental model is going to work to solve every problem. And it's knowing, oh you know, <laughs> right. It's, it's knowing that, okay, this, this is the type of problem I'm dealing with. And then like opening up the mental toolbox basically and saying, which one of these is going to work best. And I, right. I, let's I, try this. Let's try this. That's what's funny. You know, I, years ago I wrote a tiny little article called hell yeah or no mm-hmm. about a tool that I use for certain situations when I'm feeling overwhelmed, mm-hmm. I've got too many opportunities and I'm feeling like I'm drowning. And in that specific case, I've got a, you know, a rule called hell yeah or no, which is like, if I'm feeling anything less than, Oh hell yeah, that would be awesome. That would be amazing. If I'm feeling anything less than that, I just say no. Mm-hmm. So it's basically no to almost everything. But the problem is that, is that some people liked that article and quoted it a lot. Yep. And then some people have emailed telling me like, oh my God, this is great. I'm, I'm using this for everything now. I'm applying this to my relationship and my this. I go, wait, 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 wait. It's not like, no, don't. It, this is not a, something you use when you're fresh out of college and you're not sure what to do with your life. Well, then no, you're not drowning in opportunity. In fact, in that case, the best strategy is to say yes to everything. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like different tools for different times. And yeah, even certain philosophies are applicable to um, just for certain situations. There was a, I found it interesting that when somebody actually critiqued Buddhism once saying, you know, Buddhism was invented in a time where people were mostly helpless, that it, Mm-hmm. It was invented at a time where the king could just decide to go just take your land because he felt like it. And 
So Buddhism was a way of detaching from the outcome of everything as a way of protecting the downside. But by detaching from everything, it kind of means you don't really get the, the upswing either. So he was kind of, it was a, a really interesting critique saying, you know, now we're in an age where most things are up to you and Buddhism might not be the best approach anymore. It's like, oh, that was a really interesting critique. Yeah, that is you know, to say like, even an entire philosophy or religion or whatever you want to call Buddhism might have just been a certain tool for a certain time. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I generally try to think of like any domain we choose to pursue if you become an expert in something like for instance i'm an engineer or someone can be an artist or a musician or a writer those i tend to view those as just like problem solving lenses so like back in the 90s we had those toys with like the thing you put in front of your face with the levers on the side and it overlaid yes. different images it's kind of how yeah. i tend to view different mindsets or different ways of solving problems in general, because of my engineering background. And it's, so it's like, okay, maybe I can start overlaying lenses, but then the really gets fun part is when you overlay lenses from multiple domains, because then it gives you like superpowers to be able to look at things in different ways that other people might not see. Yeah. Cool. I like that. <laughs> just some of my, yeah, just some of my thoughts to kind of make things easier for people because we like to think in boxes, which is where we're headed for the next question is about, you, you tend to look at writing or writing a song and coding as very similar tasks. And as an engineer for myself and getting done doing this podcast has helped me reformulate what creativity is for myself. But what would you, how do you reframe creativity? Like to put music writing and coding in similar categories. I think that's fascinating. Oh, okay. I just, well, first I should say that I, Everybody knew me as a musician mm -hmm. for like 15 years. Like it was just my monomaniacal obsession. It was just music. I had no interest in anything but music. <laughs> and so when after 15 years, I stopped making music and started programming, my friends were shocked and almost offended. <laughs> How dare you? Dude, what are you doing? You're a musician. Now you're programming? What the hell are you doing, dude? And to me, I just felt like, well, it's not that different. And they said, the hell it's not. <laughs> I was like, well, I don't know. It's like when I'm writing a song, I was trying to solve a specific problem. It's like I had a certain idea in my head. Like, ooh, what if I took this rhythm from this Fela Kuti song and mixed it with this like beatles kind of melody, but then mm -hmm. did the funky Prince kind of guitar thing. Ooh, I wonder what that would sound like. <laughs> I would go try it. And well, now I'm programming. I'm like, okay, well, Huh, what if I took this database back and but then I found a way to like make this do that? I wonder what that would be like. like to me, it just uh, all felt like the same kind of process, right? Yep. So I thought about it some more, and it, people were, I found a, the people that were most surprised that I found programming creative were either people that knew nothing about it and just thought it seemed like a dumb day job or. Mm -hmm people for whom it was a dumb day job that they were doing out of like just doing it for the money. Yeah. So I thought about this and realized that it's not like we, it's not like making music is creative and programming is not creative. I think it's a matter of who you're doing it for. Yeah. So if I was the assistant to a Hollywood composer and the whole, you know, Paramount Pictures was telling the composer exactly what to do, and then he was dumping it on me, saying, I don't have time, you arrange the horn section, 
make it exactly like this. Well, then that's not really creative anymore, is it? Now it's like just some stupid task I've been assigned. Mm -hmm. Um, I have to arrange the horn section. So that's not really creative. But then say that was my day job to being an, an, an assistant to a Hollywood composer. And then at night I would go home and play with computer programming to like invent my own mobile app idea. Right. And then Mm -hmm. in that case, computer programming would be my creative outlet. But then vice versa, of course, if I worked for a big company that was telling me exactly what to program on computers and I was just typing out Java code to meet their specs, then programming wouldn't be very creative and I would go home at night and play guitar as my creative outlet. (laughs) (coughs) That's a really interesting perspective because I think a lot of people go into something because it strikes their creative itch in some way or another. It's like they get to play you know, with mixing a different palette from using a painting metaphor. And what we don't realize is that when you start getting into the working world, there is a certain amount of routinization that is going to occur. Like, for instance, my brother works in a corporate environment as a graphic designer. So he has to work within a very... Ah, great example. Yeah, so he has to work in a very specific, you know, palette set, like how the typeface and all that kind of stuff is very structured. And so he can't play with outside of a lot of boundaries as a graphic designer and he's obviously really good at what he does. Otherwise he wouldn't be able to work in a, in a corporate environment for graphic design, but he still comes to me sometimes and says, man, I just feel like I'm too boxed in and it really frustrates me because of all the bureaucratic overhead and things like that. And I'm like, I'm like, you're just a creative at heart and you need to have more leash basically. And, And I think, would you say this is totally off, off random thought now, but would you say creativity is a, like an innate thing, like there's a thing that's going to grab you by the lampels and compel you to create, basically? No. I think it's a matter of whatever seems fun. Mm-hmm. So like, okay, a few days ago, I was with my kid and we were out and he saw a Rubik's Cube mm-hmm. and he said, oh, can I get a Rubik's Cube? It was like eight bucks. I was like, yeah, sure. All right. I'll get a Rubik's Cube. Mm-hmm. And so then we took it home and he was playing this game where like he would make a couple twists and hand it back to me to solve it. And then we played that with each other. And then he said, close your eyes. And he made so many twists that it's like, oh, that was like completely <laughs> messed up and I don't know how to fix it. So, okay. So I have to go, the, you know, I went to YouTube and I found a video explaining how to solve Rubik's Cube. Mm-hmm. And I spent an hour like learning the, what they call them, the algorithms to learn the tricks on how to solve a Rubik's cube. Yeah. First, you solve the bottom layer, then the layer, then this. And it was fun. It like took me about an hour, and it was fascinating, and turned into like a fun memorization exercise. And so now I can solve a Rubik's cube in about three minutes. That's really um, cool. <laughs> so a couple of years ago, I got just weird. It was actually on Christmas Day. You and I are talking. Uh, the audience doesn't know this, but we are talking two days before Christmas. Yes, and um, it's always like a wonderful, quiet time of year where nobody's outside of your family's expecting anything from you. Yeah. So it's a great time to like disappear and dive into something new. And so on Christmas day, a few years ago, I was reading something about the language called Esperanto, the, the oh, spoken yeah. language. And I remember I sat down in my chair at 4 PM like, Oh, this is kind of interesting. And dude, I didn't get out of my chair until 11 o'clock at night. <laughs> It was like pitch black, the whole house, like, you know, all the lights were off the whole house. I was like, I was riveted. I was glued to my chair. I was like, oh my God, this is the most fascinating thing. I sat there for seven hours learning about Esperanto for no practical reason. Same as the Rubik's Cube. It was yeah. just, this is interesting to me right now. Like, 
I was not interested in Rubik's Cube a week ago. I was not interested in Esperanto the day six months passed after that because it was just interesting. This week, I'm learning a book typesetting programming language because I oh, need to. Like I have a... Yeah. I have my own intrinsic reason to do that because I have books coming up that I want, don't want to be dependent on typesetter, but we can talk about that later. Mm-hmm. But even situations like this interview, you know, like you throw strange questions at me, I think about them and I try to come up with an answer that's interesting to both me and your audience. <laughs> but I wouldn't say, say that these are like inherent creativity things. I think these are like, in all three of those scenarios, it's like not until something is thrown at you, do you get interested in it. So I I wouldn't say that it's like some people are just curious and some people just aren't. I think the people who think they're not curious probably just haven't been in situations where they're exposed to something that they find interesting. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more with that. I mean, there's a, that's the whole reason this thing is even called feeding curiosity for that reason, because it's just kind of, what is that thing that just kind of, it just made you stop and go, huh? And then you just start, for lack of a better term, going down the rabbit hole for whatever that is. And then when you kind of stop and reflect on what that rabbit hole opened up for you, then you realize, oh, I'm a lot farther than where I started. <laughs> right. Well, okay. Have you found that there's a wonderful uh, saying that the ocean gets deeper the further you go into it? Yeah. It's, or something like yeah, that. Yeah, like the farther where from the shore. the point is like, <laughs> yeah, like curiosity is very specific and situational. Maybe that's what I meant last time, where it's like, mm-hmm. you can't say that this person is curious and that person and is not curious. Yes. I think that those two people might be reversed in different scenarios, right? So my advice is that if you feel even a hint of interest about something, well, then just go learn a little more about it because the more you learn, the more interesting it gets, right? Like when you know nothing about a subject, it's hard to be curious about it because you don't even have any questions yet. But once you start learning anything, and you have more context, well, then you start having more questions and you get more mm-hmm. interested. So that's, I find it helps to have a real need, right? Like even a, a tiny one, like my Rubik's Cube example. Yeah. But that's a great argument for why people should get out of their comfort zones and go do random different things, exposing themselves to like completely different inputs. Because mm-hmm. if you're just going through the same routine, like every day you drive to the same job and come home and do the same thing, you eat one of six dinners in front of the TV, then no wonder you're not feeling you know, your, your curiosity sparked because yeah. you're just, you're not getting exposed to new inputs. That's but if you go scramble it and mess with it and suddenly, you know, you're sitting there, whatever, talking with a stranger who trains horses and is telling you how exciting it is or whatever it is. Like suddenly yeah. you've got these new inputs. You go, wow. Well, yeah, actually yeah. A year ago I got super into dog training. I was like, <laughs> I had no interest in dogs a year ago, but then like my kid wanted to like get a dog. And suddenly I was like looking into dogs and learning all about training. And suddenly I was like, Oh my God, I like read five different books about dog training and got fascinated with it. It's just like all of this stuff just comes from being exposed to random inputs. So yeah, anybody listening to this show that wants to, 
spark their curiosity more. Just go scramble your inputs. Go expose yourself to something completely outside your usual circles. Mm-hmm. I think that's really cool. I, I just kind of thought or like triggered a thought from uh, Michael Pollan's new book, The How to Change Your Mind. He he kind of talked about psychedelics in this way where mm-hmm. when you take psychedelics, it's like you you take your snow, snow globe, and which is your brain, and then you shake it all up and then let everything kind of resettle in new ways. And that's kind of what mm-hmm. I just thought of when you were saying like take new inputs in and stuff like that. It's like you got to shake your snow globe every so often. Otherwise, you're not going to see. Of course, you're not going to see new things or be as interested because everything is just settled and, you know, stagnant, basically. Yeah, it's nice. really cool to kind of keep building off of this uh, curiosity and exploring. How would you have so many different skills that like we've already covered your music and coding and stuff like that? So how do you think about crossing skills across domains or <clears throat> how would you look at skill acquisition more broadly for say someone in like college or something where, you know, you have to pick a degree and then stick with that thing for four years or longer. <laughs> <laughs> well, first you, you have to understand, like you don't have to. Yeah, right. <laughs> okay. There was a really interesting turning point for me about 12 years ago when I was working with a guy like kind of a um, kind of like a coach, uh, mentor type guy, mm-hmm. and it's before I sold my company. And when I he asked why do you want to? Well, really, I just wanted to quit. I wanted to leave. I wanted to stop. He said why, and I said, I'm sick of doing all these things I have to do. And he said, Well, you don't have to do any of them. I said, Well, yeah, I do. I have to pay my employees. I have to pay my taxes. I have to ship out customers' orders when they pay. And he said, No, you don't. And I said, of course I do. I said, what do you mean, no, I don't? Of course, like, <laughs> come on, yes, I, I have to pay my taxes. I have to pay my employees. And he said, Derek, I'm not just being a smart ass. You really need to understand this point before we continue. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to pay your taxes. Nobody does. You don't have to pay your employees. Nobody does. I said, but if you don't, he said, look at what will happen if you don't pay your employees. He said, they'll eventually stop coming to work. <laughs> a few of them might file lawsuits. Most of them would probably just walk away and give up and grumble and hate you. But you don't have to pay your payroll. And he said, you don't have to pay your taxes either. He said, after a few years, the IRS would probably come back to you and they would charge interest on back taxes. But let's be clear. You don't have to do anything. He said, you could right now just walk down to the local park, lay down on a bench, and just stay there for a few years. Like you don't have to do anything. Um, everything you're doing, you're choosing to do. You need to understand that. Mm-hmm. Like never forget that you're choosing to do this. And at any point, you can just choose not to. You don't have to. Just walk away from anything. There might be some consequences, and more often, there's not. So anyway, so sorry. I just had to like call that one out when you say like you have to choose a major you have to pick a focus it's no like, I, I no, appreciate that a lot so because, <laughs> because I was doing all of this stuff in parallel with you know finishing a degree and things like that so right <laughs> good example like yeah maybe inside college you have to do a certain I mean even then you don't you know don't have to but okay yeah. even inside college you're going to get the most out of it if you pick a thing, but that's not your entire life. Mm-hmm. But anyway, to, to answer your real question <laughs> about skill acquisition and you know being skills across domains, I just think that whenever something's 
important to you, you should get to know the foundations of it. <clears throat> and the main reason is because you don't want to be at the mercy of any particular person or particular company if something really matters to you. Mm -hmm. So a lot of what I've learned has been out of self-reliance. And that's because I've been around long enough to watch a lot of companies disappear. Companies that people were depending on, that people had uploaded all their stuff to. Mm -hmm. Next time there's a market crash, they're gone. You know, like we've, aren't we at the, aren't we at the, like in the longest bull market in history or something right yeah, now? It's like crazy. Th it's nuts. <laughs> there hasn't been a crash in 17 years, but before that, like there was a big crash in 2002, I think. And mm -hmm. there was kind of one in 2001 and there was kind of one in the, for that. So I could see why somebody who's just been online for 17 years thinks that it always goes like this, but yeah, yeah just go back 17 years. There were a lot of, like, just imagine if tomorrow Google, Facebook, and Instagram went out of business and mm -hmm. like, all the stuff you'd ever uploaded to them, like all your photos or whatever, were just like gone. Mm -hmm. And they're just like, oh, sorry, well, we went out of business. So what could you do? And you're like, wait, but no, all of my photos, like my pictures of my kid and everything, like yep. I was depending on you. And you think mm -hmm. and, uh, the appropriate response would be, well, you idiot. <laughs> yeah, because that email is not Why would you depend yeah. on a company? <laughs> Yeah, like, oh my God, my Gmail address is, is gone. I was depending on my Gmail address. Well, you idiot. They're a company. Don't depend on a company. Don't depend. Gmail might be gone tomorrow, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, actually, most of the people listening to this interview will outlive most of the companies they use. You know, you're probably going to live another 80 years or 70 or something like that. Mm -hmm. That's probably more that's probably longer than your email provider will last or the, the place you uploaded your photos to will last. Mm -hmm. So anyway, point is, if something matters to you, whether it's your photos, your writing, your, you know, your books, whatever, don't depend on any particular person or any particular company to, to manage that stuff. So... I've, I've felt the pain of being helpless mm -hmm. when long ago when I was like, there was an expert that I was depending on that was the only person that knew how to do something I needed with my database. I was like, I, I didn't know programming yet. And so I, I had just begun CD Baby and I hired this guy to help me with my programming and he disappeared. And it's like suddenly like my store was broken and he wasn't replying and he was just like gone. Yeah. Like just no answer to his phone, no nothing. I was like, ah! <laughs> and it was just said, okay, I, that's my fault. I was an idiot. I, I was dependent on this guy. Mm -hmm. And that's stupid. You know, this, this business matters to me. I'm not going to have my business collapse because one guy disappeared. So point is, I tend to learn things that give me self-sufficiency and independence where it matters most to me. But these things are different for everyone, right? Like, I don't depend on my car or my bike right now in my regular life. I live in a neighborhood where I can walk everywhere. So I have a car and a bike, but if they break, I don't care. I'll just pay somebody to fix those yeah. when they break. They don't matter to me enough. But I'm self-publishing my books now, so I don't want to be dependent on a graphic designer 
to do the layout. So right now, like this week, I'm learning the core language behind desktop publishing so that I, I'm never dependent on, on any designer. But for someone else, it might be vice versa, right? Like if you lived out in the country, you might be completely dependent on your car and it would be worth your time to learn how to fix your own flat tire (laughs) because you live out in the country. But then, you know, the graphic design, you don't care, just pay somebody to do it. So point is, I think to learn the foundations of the things that are important to you so that you're self-sufficient. And then just in doing that, you know, you talk about skills across different domains and skill acquisition. Well, you just, you learn things out of necessity. That's how we all learn. I mean, unless you, you know, like a Rubik's Cube or dog training, you <laughs> found something fascinating just out of some weird random chance. But for most of us, we learn things like by necessity. That's the best way to learn. Even with computer programming. If, if that would have been like a class in college that I had to take, I would have had no interest at all. I would have been a terrible student. <laughs> but a few years later, the fact that it's like I, I started this website and then it was suddenly like growing faster than I could handle by myself. And I desperately needed automation. Well, damn sure. I was like learning programming, like my life depended on it, you know, cause mm-hmm. it kind of did at that point. <laughs> so it's yeah, learning by necessity is the best way. And things that later look like you've, you know, got many skills across domains and all that kind of stuff. It's usually just because you had to learn some things out of necessity. Yeah. I, I mean, I, I completely agree because that, that's kind of been my parallel path with learning how to manage. Again, mirroring a lot of stuff is the reason I have my own website is because I didn't want Facebook or any of the social media platforms to be the, you know, the one-stop shop controlling traffic. I wanted to be able to say, yeah. you know, point to here, like, you know, they go poof one day or they're just gatekeepers for lack of a better term. I, yeah. I wanted to be able to control and say, no, this is really what, I'm driving traffic wise, not not even for like money purposes, but just because this is what I wanted to put out in the world. Like I'm going to, you know, take responsibility for the things that I put out publicly basically. And then also too, is like, I, I do love reading so much. And there was a point where I was like, I should probably start switching to all like eBooks because I didn't want to, you know, for environmental purposes and things like that. Um, Mm -hmm. But then I started thinking about it. I'm like, "Ah, I don't know. Because I love having real books. And then I'm like, well, you know, what if the internet goes poof one day? Then all of this knowledge effectively evaporates. So then then for me, I just love collecting knowledge. So I'm like, well, maybe I should just keep buying real books because they're cheaper than, they're not really much more expensive. And so therefore I can keep a library so that if it doesn't, you know, if it all goes sideways, then I still have access to information and help other people, you know, I don't know. It's just like this weird little responsibility thing to like keep acquiring knowledge and then have giving access to it. So dude, on that note, by the way, just, this is just a tiny little (laughs) side, but I'm the same way, but I don't use the cloud for anything. Mm -hmm. So even all of the eBooks I've bought through Amazon, through the Kindle or whatever, Mm -hmm. There's a program called Calibre, C-A-L-I-B-R-E. Okay, cool. With a plugin called D-D-R-M, D-E-D-R-M. So like as in to to take off the digital rights management, the DRM. So if you put the D-D-R-M plugin into Calibre, then you can open up your Kindle books in Calibre and then save them as an open, unlocked EPUB format so that they are yours forever. Cool. Um, so I, I, had, I went through the same thought process as you a few years ago where it's like, yeah, but these are, you know, I've paid a lot of money for 
these books and these are my books. I'm not just going to leave them in Amazon's cloud and let them disappear. Yes. So even though, yes, I pay for them, I don't ship them. For anything I've bought and paid for, I strip the DRM off of it and keep my own archive. So I have a hard drive with cool. like, you know, every every piece of music I've ever bought, every video I've ever bought, every book I've ever bought. I always, if it's something that I've paid for, then I strip the DRM and I archive it That's in my really private cool digital thing. library forever offline. Yeah, I'll definitely probably be going down that rabbit hole at some point to, to have that because I think it, it's really important to kind of figure out ways that we can have the things that we care about at the very least so that it doesn't become beholden to some other thing. You know, just have it longer than us, hopefully, right? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to to kind of keep going on. This. Well, I kind of had to, you know, I was doing the world citizen thing. I was like traveling yes, so yeah. much. That it's like, I, I remember when I, the first time I went to India, I, my suitcase, I, I was going to be there for a whole like month, month and a half, I think. And so my suitcase was like half books. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> you know, half clothes, half books. And I was like, and books are yeah, heavy. okay, this is, I, I think it was shortly after that that I said, I think it's time to consider that Kindle thing. Like I've yeah. just been, it's like half my luggage is books. So yeah, that was. Um, they're definitely not easy to travel with either because it's just like, they take up a lot more volume and they're pretty heavy depending on if you get hard yeah. covers or not. So I, that's actually kind of where I was going next is like this world citizen or just being comfortable to travel. It seems to be a more, something with my generation possibly that, like millennials and stuff that we want to start being travel, like world citizens, you know, vagabonding is a popular book or it seems to be a popular book. What is your thoughts on it? Cause it's, it's ironic that we grew up in the Midwest and in very similar locations. Yeah. And here we have really deep roots, at least in family ties where my parents have not moved farther than like Wisconsin or even Indiana probably like it's not very far at all and like all travel mm -hmm. I've done has just been with my friends and then you take a plane and then spend five days and come back like it's nothing crazy and then a couple of other friends have gone much farther right. but it's just more of like pulling the trigger is really hard well and it might we all have different definitions of what we want so mm -hmm. and it's it's not even like a can't even necessarily blame your family um, no. I'm one of the black sheep like my whole family all of my like my sister and my parents and my cousins and everybody, they all live like a mile from each other. Mm -hmm. They all live right there. And I'm the one black sheep on the other side of the <laughs> earth. Um, so it depends. Even, you know, what's funny uh, a few years ago, I went to a conference that was the digital nomads conference. Oh, that's really cool. And even there talking with everybody, I found out that most of these people, even though they were so self-described as digital nomads that they would attend this conference, most of them still had the definition that for them this meant I'm going to go hang out in a hammock in, in Bali or Thailand for a few years and drink cheap beers and work on my laptop on the beach. But at some point I'm going to return back here where I grew up mm. and have a kid near my parents so that my, you know, my kid can grow up near his grandparents. Mm -hmm. Whereas I had a completely different definition. I wanted to just leave and never, ever come back. Yeah. Um, so my definition of no banning is to actually deeply integrate into each place and become a legal resident, maybe even a citizen, truly make this place my home for a few years and then move on to the next new again. But let me back up. Even at the age of 36, I had no desire to travel. Wow. Like this was not something that was always in me. Yeah. So I was living on the beach in Santa Monica, California, 
I was just as happy as I could be. I had this amazing home. It was tree house. It was this house that was like wrapped around a tree right near the Santa Monica beach. I was in the music business. Los Angeles is the place to be. Like it was just in paradise. The weather's perfect. I had my bike riding on the bike. Like you couldn't pay me to travel. I had no interest at all. I was even with a girlfriend at the time that wanted to travel the world. I was just like, hell no, I don't want to travel. I live at the end of the rainbow. Like this is the best place ever. Why would I travel? But then one tiny idea got into my head that I couldn't unthink. And that was that you really only learn when you're surprised. Like if you're not surprised, Uh you may be taking in more information, but your mind isn't really changing. You only really change your mind when you find out that your previous assumptions on something were wrong. Like that's, that's the only time you really change your mind. So one of the best ways to keep yourself surprised daily is to live somewhere very unlike what you know. So, and immerse yourself in the different cultural perspectives, right? Like very different ways of looking at life, mm-hmm. looking at communication, very different approaches to expectations or values, especially. Mm. So I just, I had this idea around the age of 36 and it just wouldn't leave my mind. It's like in that one moment, that one probably happened in an instant, I felt like I couldn't unthink this idea and it shaped how I wanted to live the rest of my life. Because to me, it's so important to keep growing Mm -hmm. and keep learning and never get stuck into habits that hold me back. So ideally, I'd like to keep moving to more and more challenging places, living in each one until it, it, until it feels like it makes sense, right? Like I'd love to move to a place that seems completely bizarre right now, right? Like <laughs> Beijing, China. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to like move to Beijing and I'm sure it would be incredibly frustrating and annoying and difficult, but then give it a few years and it would probably just start to feel like home. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, this is is where all my friends are. I'm sure it would make complete sense. And then, yeah, by the time, after a few years, if Beijing makes complete sense, well, then it's time to move to Rio de Janeiro, to another place that doesn't make sense (laughs) to me, you know? Um, And then do it again. And I just think that that's a great recipe to always keep your brain, like to keep pulling out the rug from under your feet, you know? Yeah. And of course, there are other ways to do it. Of course, plenty of brilliant geniuses have never left Chicago. And people way smarter than me are are still in their hometown. (laughs) So I'm not saying this is the only way. But I think that this environment helps. I know too many people that say are constantly learning and changing when they're in their teens and their 20s. And by the time they start to get into their 30s, it's like, well... This is who I am. Yep. This is this is where I live. This is my favorite team. This is where I work. This is what I do. Uh, it's like, oh fuck, you're you're 35. Like, come on, you got like another 60 years to live. You're you're done at 35. That's ridiculous. So anyway, so my advice, not that you asked, but if somebody want you, you said something about like getting your foot out the door or yeah, just getting unstuck. Just or something. getting. So, Go, get moving, you know, just like if you want to do it, like how do you just get past that first initial resistance basically? 
Okay, so, well, first I'll I'll just tell you a tiny, cute little (laughs) moment that your listeners might appreciate, Mm -hmm. which is, like I already said that I had this idea, I had this itch, this idea that wouldn't go away. But it was really like, there was this moment in December at the age of 36 when I said like, yeah, you know, what if I just started traveling, traveling the world and, and I don't know, went somewhere like London, mm-hmm. like, let me just see, like, I'll just, so I went to some travel website and I was living in Portland, Oregon at the time. And I said, let me just look at prices. Okay. It, it wants me to pick a date. I don't know. May 1st. Okay. I'll pick May 1st. Oh no, it needs me to do a round trip. Okay. Well, what is six months after May? Okay. November 1st. All right, fine. There, there's your fake dates. Mm-hmm. Let me see what it would cost to go round trip from Portland, Oregon to London, May 1st to November 1st. And we're like, tick, 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 click. I was like, holy shit, $380? It's <laughs> amazing. Like $380 to go round? Yeah, wow. That's cheap. I better book that. So I was like, huh? Yeah, uh, I'm going to book it. So it just like, I just like, w- like the idea kind of came into my head. And a, a minute later, I had typed my credit card and clicked book it. Yeah. Because it was only 380 bucks. And I was like, huh? I just booked a six month trip to London. <laughs> like, it was like, like, well, I guess I just did it. So yeah, I guess I'm going to go to London for six months. Like I didn't know anything else. I didn't know where I was going to stay. Right, exactly. But I just booked it. So, well, that's one way to take a first step. Mm-hmm. But, but in hindsight, London is too similar to New York. I mean, it, felt, it might as well have just been like Boston or something, you know, like, it's not that different. Yeah. So I think, for example, if you're an American, it'd be different if somebody's listening to this from, you know, Estonia. Yes. But if you're an American, for example, then don't choose Canada, England, Ireland, Australia, or New Zealand. Like those don't count. <laughs> those, <laughs> the cultural differences are so minor yeah. that it almost doesn't count as, you know, like really expanding your mind like this. But on the other hand, don't just because some dude in a podcast interview said, don't, don't let that stop you. If that's, you really want to go to Ireland, then go. But, but I think if you're feeling blank slate and you want to do this, consider some place like Singapore mm-hmm. because Singapore is pretty unique in that English is the first language there. Like the government oh, wow. and everything and all the newspapers and all the media is in English. English is their first language, mm-hmm. but their cultural value are very different. So I think it helps to go someplace where you don't have to learn a new language yet. Like it's going to be enough. If you're taking your first step out of your home country, then it helps to go someplace where you can speak English because then you can assimilate and integrate. I mean, that's the important thing. Yeah. If you'd rather not go to Asia, you'd rather start with Europe, then consider Budapest mm-hmm. in Hungary or Lisbon, Portugal. Those are two places that are like quite different culturally, but most people speak English to yeah. get by. So whatever place you choose, my advice is you have to integrate. Like you really have to assimilate and integrate into the local culture. You can't just go there and stay in a little expat bubble and joke with other Americans and go drink yep. beers and laugh at the silly foreigners in which you are you know, living in their country. <laughs> and also you got to get past that initial feeling that, that they're doing everything wrong. Like at first, when you get to a country, you're going to focus on the frustrations. Day-to-day life will be frustrating. 
and you'll accidentally generalize. So for example, this happened to me when I first got to Singapore. One day, like when I had first arrived, I went to go do something like customer service wise, like trying to get my phone bill or something like that. Mm -hmm. And somebody was rude to me. And I came home thinking, people in Singapore are rude. (laughs) But no, of course, it was one person that was rude to me. Whereas on the other hand, if you go down to your local you know, grocery store and the checkout clerk is rude to you, do you think people in America are rude? No, you think, wow, that person was a jerk. Yeah. But the problem is when you first get to a new country, it, it almost feels like every person you encounter is representing the country. Yeah. Because you've had so few interactions in this country. So first, well, first try to integrate, but second, like try to not accidentally generalize know that if one person is rude to you it's it's just that person and then i think try to assume that the way that you grew up is wrong and their way is right mm. because otherwise you're going to do the reverse you're just going to assume like no 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 they're doing what are they doing with the grocery store everything's wrong or the way that they're paying their bills is wrong the way that people are are chaotic at the bus you get on the bus that's just wrong people should line up in an orderly fashion or whatever you think okay no no no, hold on maybe the way i grew up is wrong and they are right and you have to kind of psych yourself into that mindset so that you can try to understand and try to assimilate and not keep them at a distance but integrate until you find yourself saying we instead of they you know that's awesome um And then ideally stay at least three months, uh, make some ties, make local friends and fall in love. I like that a lot. It really, I mean, I'll probably be using some of this advice myself because I think I've never heard someone talk about it in that way to be able to break it down, you know, otherwise, and then just the easy stuff, you just, just do it or talk about the the planning part of it, which it seems like there's less planning in general across the board because I've been asking this question for a little while or a similar question like this. So it's kind of funny. Well, by the way, if you're under 30 and you're listening to this, go before you're 30 because I don't know what's up with the number 30, but all around the world, so many countries make it dead easy to get a work visa if you're under 30. Really? But much harder to get one if you're over 30. Huh. So it is so much easier if you're thinking about doing this. Yeah, go go look at, I mean, first you can just go on a tourist visa for like, three or even six months. You can almost always go to a country for three months and then you can just leave and come back again for another three months. Mm-hmm. Almost any country will let you get away with that. But if you want to try to integrate and stay more than six months, yeah, if you're under 30, you can usually get a work visa or like, you know, for just young labor. And then you get these jobs like working at cool things like, I don't know whether it's a ski instructor or working at a hotel or doing mm-hmm. things like that where you I mean, tons of other people in their 20s and and you get to like really integrate because you're going to be working alongside people that grew up there and they're going to be you're all going to go out together after work like that's mm-hmm. so much better instead of just going to some place like Cambodia and sitting in a little bubble of other expats and not talking to the locals at all yeah I just think the most important thing well I mean the most important thing is to go but the second most important <laughs> thing is to you really got to try to to integrate and assimilate mm-hmm. and not just stay in your little bubble where you party with other expats you know yeah i think that's awesome it's really actual advice and i and i didn't know about the work visa part of it but it does make sense to be able to kind of 
give you a license to go for longer periods of time because I think that's part of the big big question mark for most people is the cost and yeah right well (laughs) imagine this imagine you're like 27 listening to this and so you get a work you figure out some way to get a work visa to go to I don't know pick a a country in Europe Mm, Germany Germany you get a work visa to go to Germany because you're 27 and it's easier if you're under 30 so now you're in Germany and imagine this you stay for say five years, you start to learn some German. And now you've been a resident for five years. Most countries will make you a citizen if you've been there for five years. Mm. And so now you get a passport. So now you've got a German passport along with whatever one you grew up with. Yeah. And once you've got a German passport, well, now you have the right to live anywhere from Iceland to Italy, from Finland to Spain. You know, like you have the legal right and that stuff passes down to your kids automatically. So now as soon as your kids are born, they'll immediately have a German passport. And then that, you know, I think it, depending on their gender or whatever, then it passes down to their kids all because you spent five years there back in the year, you know, 2020. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so if you're thinking long-term and multi-generational, it makes so much sense to go especially when you're young, like go Mm -hmm. integrate, go stay somewhere else, go get out of your home country, expand your mind, learn a different way of approaching the world, learn that things are not so black and white, that there are multiple ways Mm -hmm. of approaching anything. And it's not that one way is right and the other way is wrong, that there are multiple (laughs) correct ways of approaching anything. And then you get these other benefits, like like to to me, to be a real world citizen is to have the legal right to live places and that comes through legal residency, legal citizenship, passports, etc. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's really cool. And just being a citizen of the world, I think is is going to be more and more important as as with this connectedness with the internet happens. We're we're, you know, being able to blend cultures through I mean, this conversation is an example of that, just being able to call someone across the ocean and I'm here in the Midwest. Like that's just goes to show how important it is to be able to understand <coughs> cultures across distances. You know, it, it's just going to become more and more important to be able to look at other people instead of, instead of saying they, <laughs> like you're saying, yeah, it, 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 it'll solve a lot, I think, or at least just help you navigate the world as it gets more complex. Yeah. And it's, Honestly, I think the trend right now, if we were talking 20 years ago, it would have been Mm -hmm. different. 20 years ago, it felt like the trend was towards globalization. Mm -hmm. Now it feels like the trend is towards like tribalism and putting up stronger borders. And I I think it's more of this like us versus them mentality. So yeah, Mm -hmm. I think it's even more important to deliberately counteract that. Yeah, because I truly think that there's more in common, like value wise, across people than we lead to believe on or at least yeah. a, a knee-jerk reaction. So it's worth deconstructing those those boundaries and say, you know, how did you grow up? Because if you just take the the thematic values of like how someone grew up, you know, someone it, even in as different as like China versus the U.S., it would be more or less the same, you know, the same value structures. Like I had, you know, parents, like that kind of stuff. And I, I just think it's worth highlighting that stuff and then getting exposure to it is, yeah. is even better. <laughs> it it kind of leads to this next question. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. With, um, 
because you had talked about this at the end of one of your blog posts, but it says, don't confuse the medium with the message. Don't confuse the tool with the goal and don't confuse the vehicle with the path. And then I wrote what I was writing there for thoughts wise, but yeah, I think that's like really similar to how people tend to think about stuff is, is they overly box themselves in or they confuse the tool with what it does. (laughs) Okay. Yeah. That thing. Okay. So that thing I wrote was because I told you my little history at the beginning of the call that I was a professional musician that accidentally started a company. But then after 10 years of running the company, I got surprisingly lucky and sold it for millions. Mm -hmm. And so people who meet me after that assume that I'm some kind of like a stereotypical entrepreneur and they start talking to me about their, you know, angel round finances and their series A and blah, 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 and all this stuff that I have no (laughs) knowledge or interest in. So, but I could see how somebody would just assume like, oh, okay, you sold your business for millions. So you must be this kind of person, but it's not at all true. Mm -hmm. I mean, the truth is I didn't even want to start a business. And (laughs) when it was too late and my business was growing, I mean, I absolutely was not doing it for the money. People ask my advice on how to grow your business. And they look at me strangely when I say I, I never tried to grow my business. In fact, I was trying to keep it smaller than it was. I was actively trying to prevent its growth. It was growing bigger than I wanted it to. So I've never tried to grow a business and they just, Mm -hmm. they don't even know what to do with that. So the reason I said that stuff is because I think we need to drop our assumptions. Don't assume that the common pairing is always true, right? So don't confuse the medium with the message. Don't confuse the tool with the goal. Don't confuse the vehicle with the path. In those cases, what I'm referring to is, is my company. My company was the medium, the tool, the vehicle. But, but don't assume that I'm interested in business or profits or investors or any stuff that often goes with it. But you see this in other professions too, mm-hmm. right? Like someone could be a politician because they're greedy and they want the glory. <laughs> or someone can be a politician for very selfless social justice reasons, right? You can't assume that musicians are necessarily creative, heart-driven people that live their life in chaos and sleep till noon every day. You know, you need to, I think, acknowledge the stereotypes. First realize them, like acknowledge them, mm-hmm. but then unbraid them because they're often not true. So you need to disconnect the outer action, uh, the appearance or the profession with your assumption about that person's inner motives. You know, the, the outer appearance doesn't tell you anything about the inner motives. Yeah, I agree. It's, it's one of those things you, you, we stereotypes are useful because they give us context and how to act easily in, in complex situations. But to do that for everybody is, is a little disingenuous because not everybody does the things they do for the same reasons. So I, right. that, that's why I wanted to unpack this because I think like the medium and the message is such a cool distinction. It's like just because you're using a certain medium to convey a message doesn't mean you buy into all of that baggage. 
And I, <laughs> right. There's the funniest example I saw. I told you I lived, I lived in Santa Monica on the beach. Yeah. And I don't know if it's still true now, but when I was there, it just felt like every single person in Santa Monica was really into yoga. And it's a funny thing because they wouldn't just do yoga. Mm-hmm. They would like start doing yoga and then just decide to like buy in wholeheartedly to this whole thing. They'd start saying namaste and they'd, they'd start putting up like little like yin yang things in their house and um, going for drinking only deionized water or whatever. And yeah. like, it's just so funny when oh, and there would even sometimes be like a certain tone of voice. Like the that they would, like melodic like, kind of sounding. Yeah. Like you didn't used to speak like that a few months ago, but now because you're doing yoga, you're like, you're, you're like putting on this affected voice. Like some people feel a need to buy in. Yeah to this whole thing. That's, like it's, that's it's overestimulating. Thing. <laughs> right. <laughs> right? <laughs> hey, touche. That was good. Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that's one of the things that's funny is like people's identity becomes a little too malleable, right? They, they buy into a certain, like their, whatever image they, they supposed to portray as that type of person or a person that does X. Right. And so then they let that take over their entire identity. And I, I try really hard to not say like mentally, look at what I do and say, okay, this is not like, because I'm an engineer, yes, it's a part of me, but it doesn't inform the I am, right? Everything I am is internal. And I'll, what I choose to do is just the, the, the outwardly manifestation mm. of those things. But I'm, we're all like foreverly more complex and dynamic than anything we choose to fill like role wise, at least. Yeah. That's how I like to think about it. And it really helps, you know, have that identity foreclosure or like keep it at bay. <laughs> Because we tend to, mm-hmm. we tend to like to attach to things, especially the things that we get accolades for to our identity, you know? <laughs> so as so I try to, to do a lot of proactive work to say, yes, I'm this, because I used to do this a lot, like, especially growing up, it's like, you see the certain ways that you are and you see other people who aren't like you and they get praised for things. And you're like, well, I guess I'm just this nerdy guy in the corner and I don't know how to be that person. <laughs> and, and you just you know, box yourself in slowly but surely. And then all of a sudden you realize, oh, I'm the one who put these borders around myself, not the other way around. All right. So to keep building on like the stereotyping, but getting a little bit more broader, not just in the working world, but also within the gender stereotypes, you had a really cool blog blog post about how you tend to look at stereotypes uh, between genders and treating them more or less the same, even though they're not. And I thought it was a really good way of just kind of cutting through the, the, the BS that a lot of people get hung up on this stuff. And you had also mentioned that you have more female best friends than male as well. So I just would love to unpack this to, to just give your thoughts on it, because I think it's one of those things we kind of talk about in society and it's a little eggshelly feeling. And I just think it's, it's worth, I like your take really. (laughs) Sure. So why I have more female friends than male might just be an accident of history Mm -hmm. that when I was 12, there was this girl, Sharon, that I sat next to in junior high school in Hinsdale, Illinois. And yeah, we were just best friends and we just did everything together and, and, uh, but we're like absolutely not at all attracted to each other. And she was just my best friend for years. And then she moved to Italy and I think that just kind of like, and somebody else became my best friend. And I think it just kind of became my norm. Who knows? Formative years. Mm-hmm. But 
but I've heard there's so because of this, maybe there's something that's always just been a pet peeve of mine that's mm-hmm. always annoyed me is when uh, my friends say things like, well, you know how men are. Men mm-hmm. are always just like, uh, you know, well, you know how women are. Men. Women are always. Bleh. And every time somebody says that, of course, they, they say it about the opposite gender. Yes. And what, so whenever they say that, I, it, it always just feels wrong to me. I mean, just factually wrong when they say, well, you know how all men are. I'm like, no, that's not at all true. And when yeah. I say, you know how all women are, I think, no, that's, that's not at all true from my experience. And so I was always the one among friends to kind of say like, you know, like say like if, if a female friend says, well, you know, men are never good at explaining how they feel. Mm-hmm. I say, well, actually nobody's good at explaining how they feel. That's a human thing, not a male thing. And usually when I say that, whoever I'm talking to has to acknowledge like, oh yeah, okay, you're right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But then I thought it was really interesting when after a few years of this annoying me that I read a book that about social psychology Mm -hmm. where social, social psychologists have found that the differences among men and the differences among women are much greater than the average differences between men and women in general. So at the same time, they found that we, we all have a natural human nature to tend to exaggerate the differences between groups, right? So, I mean, you could say the same thing with race groups or nationality groups, and in this case, gender groups. It's, mm-hmm. We tend to exaggerate the differences between groups, like yeah. in our own thinking. Unless you're a stand-up comedian, then you do it on purpose for a laugh. <laughs> but so I think... If you want to think clearer, then you need to, to deliberately de-exaggerate the differences. And so I like to just take that all the way and just say, okay, if my human nature is to exaggerate the differences between groups, then I'm going to take it all the way the other way and overcompensate and just assume there is no difference between the groups because I know that my human nature will compensate. So I think of the metaphor of throwing a Frisbee. Right, like if you've ever like played catch with a frisbee for a while, <laughs> I'm sitting here like making the movement with my hand. You know? <laughs> if you've ever played with a frisbee for a while and you find out like, man, every time I throw that frisbee, it bends all the way to the left. Like every time I throw it, I try to aim exactly to my friend and it goes way off to the left. Well, from now on, I'm going to aim over there to the right because I know the frisbee will bend to the left and then it'll actually go where I want to go. So I, now I don't aim where I really want to go, I aim way off over here, knowing the Frisbee will correct. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So that's why I think like, if you're thinking about the difference between your group and another group, whether it's gender or race or whatever, just assume there are no differences. And that's the way of aiming, you know, overcorrecting. Just assume that men and women are the same. And then your natural human tendency will, and that's how to, to find the sweet spot, like find the more correct point yeah. of view. I like that. And it, it kind of shows through through with like a lot of the stuff we've been talking about when it comes to travel and it comes to working in different domains professionally. It's like, don't 
try not to carry your assumptions too closely, right? <laughs> because it, it usually is not the right way to, right, right. You know, it's not the right lens at the time, or it's, you're going to assume too much. You know, you're bringing, you know, 10 pounds of, of crap <laughs> along with the, you know, the 1% that's actually good. <laughs> it's right. I, I, I like that a lot. And it just to, to kind of put some context on it and put it away that I think cuts through a lot of the, the, the apprehension that people feel when, when dealing with other things, like talking about like professors having to deal with some of this stuff now or different, you know, questionable situations, I guess. It, I just like to talk about this stuff that helps people have a way that makes it more even handed in general, because it's, it doesn't need to be well, so polarized. You know, it's funny. I left America 10 years ago mm-hmm. and, and I hear that some stuff has happened since then. Mm-hmm. American. And so I thought it was really interesting in that same book, the social psychology book, where they talked about the differences between groups. Yeah. I'm, I'm going to quote this wrong, but they, they pointed out a study where they asked Democrats what, what they felt Republicans wanted the tax rate to be or the something. So like they basically were asking, and then they did the same thing. And they asked Republicans, what do you think the Democrats want the tax rate to be? Yeah. And so each one trying to think, what do you think the other side thinks? Yeah. And, and then they asked afterwards, you know, and now what do you think? What do you want the tax rate to be? Or where do you stand on this issue? And what they found is that, yeah, each group thought that the other group was way different from their own like standards. And I think the specifically, I remember the tax rate one, the differences that what they thought, which each group thought the differences would be, would be like a 40%, like what do you want the tax rate to be? The actual difference between Republicans and Democrats was 4%. Wow. <laughs> There's the actual difference. Uh, but, they, but what they thought the difference, each group thought the difference was difference was only 4%. And I think this went for some other issues too, not just tax rates. Mm-hmm. Um, but that to me is the, the classic, I mean, we used the gender example, but yeah. to me, that's kind of the classic case of like, yeah, where people assume the, that the other side is so much different than them. Oh, those people, those idiots. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Those idiots want it to be so wrong. And it's like, oh no, if you actually talk to people, you're not, yeah. you know, your differences you're, you're, are You have a 10, 10 X margin of error in your assumption. <laughs> right. And so, Maybe that's the thing to me about like why I think it can be so healthy to leave your country for a long time and get to know other points of view is that mm-hmm. that you find like, yeah, in the big picture of things, I think when you're in America. Actually, wait, this is this is gonna go okay, I'm gonna use America as the first example, but this goes for anywhere. Okay. When you're in America, the differences between groups inside America feel huge. Yeah. But then like if you compare the American mindset, say you move to India. And now it's like, well, basically all Americans are about the same compared to Indians. Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, in, in the relative comparison, yeah, there's not that, I mean, what the Republicans, Democrats, whatever, it's basically the same. Mm-hmm. What do you compare it to the outside? But the same thing goes in, in all places, right? So it's funny that like, if you ask people from, say, Korea for their opinions on people from Norway, 
Well, they, you know, they're like, mm-hmm, people from Norway seem fine. And you ask them about the Japanese. They're like, oh, the Japanese. Now, let me tell you. You know, <laughs> you know Koreans are like focused on the, the, the subtle differences between Koreans and Japanese. Yeah. Are amplified, you know, huge. And same thing with, but then you ask a Swede, somebody from Sweden about the differences between Swedes and Norwegians. They're like, oh, pff, oh those Norwegians, they got to stick up their butt. They're just you know, <laughs> formal. They're, they're, yeah. And, you know, when the truth is they're, they're about the same. And so I think every, we, fo- we focus on these small differences with our neighbors. Yep. And we over amplify those because they're so easy to, you know, put our finger on or whatever you call it. Yeah. Um, so when you step away from that, you move all the way across the earth. It just feels like it gives you a better perspective yeah. on being where you came from. Like, like seeing that you did not come from the center. Like you, like we all grow up. I'm sorry, I'm picturing the metaphor of like a flower with the, what do you call that? The Whatever the thing in the middle of a flower is, right? And then you have all the petals on the edge. Yeah. That, that we, we tend to all think that, that our position that we grew up in is like the center of yeah. things. And those people are over there and these people are over here, but I'm in the center. I know it's and better. I think we, right. And when you leave America and you get into other mindsets, then you realize like, oh no, I actually... None of us are in the center. Mm-hmm. Like we're all off on one of these pedals. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of uh, Tim Urban has, is writing this really long multi-part thing right now, but he talked about this idea of how people think basically. And he's got like the scientist is like the, the top rung of higher level thinking where they're always, you know, testing their hypothesis or ideas basically. And then you have one rung down, which is this idea of the sports fan. And I think or at least using that as a metaphor for this kind of thinker, basically. But basically everyone has their, you know, their team or their idea that they're rooting for. And most people tend to think this way where they have an hypothesis and they will, you know, want a certain thing to win, but they'll let, you know, the the referee call a good play and say, okay, they made a good play, but I'm not, I'm not happy about it. But you also think about it the same Hmm. way when you have like, even in neighboring cities, right? Like here in the Midwest, you have the Packers versus the Bears is like this rivalry thing. And, you know, right now is like high time for football season. So everyone's, you know, in Uras sports mode right now, which I could care less about, but I see it all the time. You see all these people who are like really into it and it's like, oh, there it is. There's that thinking again. And people tend to do this across borders, across neighborhoods, across whatever it is, right? <laughs> and it's really cool now that I'm thinking yeah. about it, like just yeah. the way you're explaining it is adding more to that metaphor for me. I like so. Yeah, go ahead. For years, I was actually with this girl from Sweden, mm-hmm. and she was from the west coast of Sweden, from a city called Gothenburg. Mm-hmm. And we, I was, we were together for like six and a half years, and so we went back to Sweden together many times. And I always wanted to go to Stockholm. She's like, I'm not going to Stockholm. Those stuck-up Stockholm, really. I hate them. They don't think they're better. <laughs> it was only like two hours away, and she just refused to go there with me. <laughs> because she just hated them, stupid Stockholm people. And so, you know, years later after we broke up, I went back to Stockholm and it was wonderful. And it's just so funny. It's like, yeah, these like these little tiny territorial, you know, amplifying those differences. There it is like that. Again, that's that, that same thing that over, we tend to amplify the differences between groups. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I like that. It's, it's, a, it's worth highlighting these things so people can at least question them. I like people when pushing people to question the things that they don't, they haven't stopped to, to think about. Like, especially like sports, sports teams or cities you live in, it, it, you get, you know, for lack of a better term, indoctrinated at birth to assume certain things. And 
it's not until you have a chance to distance yourself from the people around you that you can actually say like, hmm, why do, why do I really believe that? Or is that even my belief? Is that just something that my parents or where I lived has put into me? Yeah. <laughs> to kind of go back, and I know you don't want to go too deep into this stuff, but you mentioned you have a son and he's you know taught you how to be more curious about stuff. But I think parenting is, is a really interesting domain for philosophically or, or higher level because of it's the one job we, we can choose to have that you don't, you know, you don't get interviewed for, or you, no one checks a credential or something like that. You just are figuring it out as you go along. And so it's more of like any just higher level thoughts about raising a child or, you know, how would you like how have your child be exposed to the ideas that you think about? Like you've been talking this whole conversation or if we want to just go broadly, like a student or some, you know, you're mentoring maybe a high school student or something. Okay. So it's kind of a two-part question. Yeah, um, I combine the two. <laughs> I don't really have that much to say about parenting because I've found that it's so situational, mm-hmm. right? Like I have friends who have three kids where like, two of them are total angels and one is just Satan. You know? <laughs> yeah. um, so I think that a surprising amount of, of who people are is just DNA. Like mm-hmm. it's just nature. It really surprised me. I think that, you know, nature versus nurture, I used to just think it was entirely nurture. Like we are who we are based on things that happen to us and yeah. all that. But it's really interesting to see like how much of it is probably just DNA. So for me, like my kid is just awesome. He's just great. And so being with him for me is like meditation. When I'm with him, I just shut down myself. I shut down my needs. I shut down my ambitions and I just kind of like turn it off. I mean, first I just also just literally, I turn off the computer. I turn off my phone. Mm-hmm. I just give him my full attention without distractions. And then I just enter his world so when we're together, he just leads and I just follow. And that is my complete and total parenting technique. You know, that's it. Uh, okay. Um, <laughs> but, okay, so your second part of your question was about, like, being the a, kind of stuff we're talking about and encouraging a child to explore the world. Yeah, like being a guide, or, basically. Not, like, for, forcing him into something because that's what, like, I see a lot of parents who overlay their own, like, oh, this is what I wanted to do in my childhood, so I'm going to make it so that my child has those things, too, even if their child <laughs> is showing all the outward signs that they don't really care about those things. <laughs> right, okay, so truth is, I mean, I do, despite what I just said, I definitely do some of that. I do nudge like some tiny techniques, right? Like I, I believe that anything that he's physically capable of doing, I let him do himself. Yeah. And I, like, I do have a parenting opinion in favor of self-sufficiency and independence. And again, that's a cultural thing. Like I've seen in India, especially I've seen some kids like as teenagers that are still completely helpless and dependent on their parents. Like they don't know how to make a meal, you know, Mm -hmm. but for example, like when he was five, we lived in a neighborhood in New Zealand where I trusted it. So we had, we often went to the corner store together, which is just across the street. And so when he was five, I just decided like, okay, I think he's ready. And I gave him some money 
to go across the street by himself mm-hmm. to our usual corner store to get himself something and come back home by himself. And I watched out the window and he did it. And you know, the guy at the store knows him and it was cool. He like went and did this thing by himself at the age yeah. five. And when we were six, we were living in a different neighborhood that was like more of like an enclosed like cul-de-sac kind of neighborhood. It was totally safe, no through traffic. Mm-hmm. Um, and there were some other neighbor kids. So I just let him run off with the neighbors. And, you know, for like an hour at a time, I didn't know where he was, but I knew that he was in the vicinity. I didn't worry. And, and then just last week at the age of seven, I was in the kitchen making uh, breakfast and he started a fire in the fireplace without me knowing it. And uh, you know, I was surprised. Yeah, right. But <laughs> in there, I was like, what the hell? I was like, oh, all right. But, but he knew how to do it carefully because I taught him how. So yeah. with each of those examples, like there was some preparation, yes, but the biggest hurdle was the trust, right? Like mm-hmm. I had to just trust. There was like an optimistic trust that everything's going to be okay. And it was a little scary, but I figured that that's my problem not his, mm-hmm. right? Like, I don't want to project any fears about the world into him. I want him to believe that the world is not scary. I want him to believe that he's capable. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, able, that he's capable, that he can do this. I'm not going to do that overprotective, like, oh, no, 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 yeah. don't do that. No, stay <laughs> with me, stay, you know, you are not safe without me. That's that's a total, see, that's, a, sorry, I'm thinking out loud, but that's like a um, completely valid cultural difference where I'm choosing the opinion that I just said, but I know plenty of people, especially like I said, in India that do the opposite and they're not wrong. Like I'm not saying I'm right. That's wrong. I knew some other people. Yeah. I know plenty of other people that completely shelter their kids as long as possible. And that is the other, that's also a perfectly valid technique that probably grew out of certain scenarios, but for my scenario, for him, for us, for me and him, like, yeah, this is, I, I teach him the opposite. I, I want to teach as much independence as possible, mm-hmm. teach him how to make a fire, teach him how to be careful, teach him how to do everything he can by himself. Thanks. I, I, and, you know, there's no right or wrong answer here. And I think you're, you're making that very clear because it is not one size fits all. And it also depends on situationally. But I think it's just worth, it's just worth highlighting because I think it's just such a important job that, doesn't get highlighted enough because a lot of people, again, hold assumptions where it's like, Oh, I can't believe, you know, the parent talk kind of stuff. And I just, I just think again, it's, it's worth highlighting how other people go about it without judging basically. Yeah. You know, there were other parts in our conversation today where I kind of stopped and said, well, here's my advice. Yeah. (laughs) Right. It's like, yeah. Move to Singapore. (laughs) But you know, when it comes to parenting, pff, I've got no advice. Yeah. And I think that's what I meant about the DNA thing. It's like, I don't know who your kid is, who yeah. you are. Like nobody, nobody knows your situation, but you, it's different for every, it's mm-hmm. yeah. Same with like love relationships. You know, some, some stranger said, can you give me some relationship advice? I said, well, no, <laughs> I don't know you. I don't know your, yeah. Your, I feel the same thing with career advice. Actually, when people like, I mean, look, I, I usually would probably say this at the end of the interview, but mm-hmm. I still read and reply to every single email I get. And so I always encourage people, especially if they've already lasted, you know, 19 minutes into a yeah. podcast interview to send me, go to my site, go to sivers.org and my emails in big letters there and just click it and send me an email and say hello. Mm-hmm. Um, whether you want to ask me a question or just introduce yourself, 
but the thing is sometimes people that I've never heard from before will send me like a two sentence question. Like, Hey, I don't know if I should quit my job or not. I'm thinking about maybe starting my own business. What should I do? I'm like, I have no idea. <laughs> like, depends. Like, who are you? I mean, we'd have to like sit down for two hours for you to tell me <laughs> everything about your background, your scenario. Like, I'm not going to just give blind advice. It all just depends on who you are. Yeah. Um, that's I, you're right. It's it's so important that you know people look for out external influences to give them a reason why to jump when you know there's so much to unpack. Like, does it make sense for you to do such a thing or whatever? And it's just. Yeah, I, I feel the kind of the same way when people like you see on Instagram or whatever, like workout advice or stuff like that, like follow my program. And it's like, uh, like, how can you even begin to like, uh, unless it's just super general, but like, it just seems so crazy to me. I'm just like, you know, all you can put out there is like, hey, this seems to work for me. And maybe if you do it too, it might work for you. But, you know, maybe yeah. <laughs> there's a good chance that 90% of it might not work. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. So for kind of going back a little bit further to a different topic, kind of a little sidestep, I, you had a thing on your, your profile about like that you're an I, INTJ, you, you highlighted introvert. And I just thought it was an interesting that you decided to put it in there since you do kind of don't categorize super heavily. So I thought it was a little fun thing right. to unpack. And then I'm, I'm technically an INTJ too. And I don't know, maybe it's my engineering stuff, just collecting data that I just love to take these personality things and kind of overlay them on top of each other and see like, Ooh, here's the patterns. <laughs> but I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on these personality type tests. I think I put INTJ on my site because um, so it's one of those things where it's like, I don't know, like 20 years ago or something like I, right. I took the little Myers-Briggs test and I answered the 50 questions or whatever it was. And afterwards it said, you are an INTJ. And mm -hmm. I said, all right. Uh, so I read the description. I went, oh, wow. Wow. Yeah. This is, this is weirdly accurate. Yeah. Okay. Huh. That, that actually, okay. You're kind of freaking me out how accurate that was. So I think I... It's like a shorthand of like, okay, I could sit here for five paragraphs and tell you some stuff about me or just click this link. I mean, that's, you know, yeah, <laughs> I fall okay. into this category. This, this describes me. So I think that was kind of just a little shorthand for like, here's something about me. Yeah. Um, if you don't know me and you're thinking about contacting me and you're going to ask me if I want to come hang with you at Burning Man, well, probably not. <laughs> and here's why. <laughs> so I think that for me, What's more interesting about these kinds of categorizations like introvert, extrovert, are that it helps me understand other people, mm -hmm. right? Like, I couldn't understand why anyone would want to run a marathon on the big day with all the fuss and the noise and the crowds <laughs> and the clipboards and the walkie-talkies and all that stuff when they could have just done the exact same run by themselves the day before. Yeah. They could have had like wonderful, like peaceful solitude. They could have had the road to themselves. Why would anybody choose to do it at the same time as anybody, everybody else? But then like an extrovert explained to me that they get really charged up by having all those people around. Mm -hmm. I was like, oh, really? Like, you actually like having other people around? And I said, yeah, like it'd be de depressing and sad. Like I wouldn't do it by myself. But you get a whole bunch of other people around now. I want to do it. I went, oh, weird. Okay. And you're like, I'm the you're exact gross. opposite. <laughs> I, I would, I would be ten times more likely 
to run a marathon if I got to do it all by myself. Uh-huh. If I had to like do it in a crowd with other people, no, just no way. Just count me out. Like no interest. But I, I, same with, you know, we talk about introvert, extrovert a lot, but mm-hmm. time focus. There's a fascinating book by Phil Zimbardo called The Time Paradox. Ooh. He's a uh, Stanford University yeah, psychologist, he did the kind of a legend. Lucifer Effect was another one of his more famous, the uh, Stanford Prison Experiment. There we go. That's the one. Yeah, yeah. He's, yeah, he's most famous for that. But my favorite thing of his was the time paradox because same thing, he pointed out how some people are mostly present focused Mm-mm. where they think mostly just of like today and this week tops. Yes. Anything past this week, it's just, uh, you know, it's off the radar. They can't do that. Whereas people are very future focused and think hardly anything of today. Or like today is just... Um, lived in service of their future self. Mm-hmm. And then he even talked about the past focused, how some people really mostly live in the past, um, whether positive or negative, you know, whether nostalgia, you know, past positive, or people who are like constantly in a state of kind of haunted PTSD, which is like past negative, where you can't let go of the past. And, and yeah, that really helped me understand some people in my life that made no sense to me before. And once I understood that p- different people have different time focuses, yeah, it wasn't so much about my self-definition. Or maybe like once I was able to categorize myself and I said, oh yeah, okay, future focus. This, this is describing the way I see the world. Mm-hmm. Now I understand, okay, some people really just open their eyes and look at the world in a completely different way because they're looking through a different time lens that's cool i'm gonna have to look into that book because i that's oh it's fascinating that sounds super fascinating for me because i do i do do tend to do similar things with like focusing farther afield but then not worrying about the the middle part of it like when i was doing my degree i was like okay i got you know roughly four years to figure out the degree thing like I'll, by the time I'm done with it I'll have this thing that's the credential but like how that's gonna like shake itself out like I didn't really care you know it's just like I'm gonna just take things and figure it out as I go along instead of like worrying about like I'm supposed to hit these benchmarks at these times and if I'm not doing that then I'm gonna <laughs> like be stressed out or something like that all right so we're gonna go on to kind of like your personal philosophy stuff here and you have the you had self-discovered minimalism and stoicism and then had a a realization that you hadn't really created it on your own there was this whole you know area of philosophy that had already kind of been around for like 2000 years. So I I just love stoicism. It's like one of my favorite ideas that I've kind of run into and helped me get into like mindfulness and meditation. So I just love to unpack how you think about that stuff. And it it does show through, especially the minimalism stuff on like your website and how you write, because it's, there's not a lot of extra fluff (laughs) between your words and things like that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, stoicism in particular, I don't know why I think the way I do or I think okay well it might be kind of situational I mean imagine this where I said that ever since that I was a professional musician from the age of 14 until 29 Mm -hmm. so starting at the age of 14 I really knew like this is what I want I want to be a successful musician yeah and because of that I was expecting my life to be hard like I knew I was never going to have a job I was never going to have a pension or, or health insurance or any of that stuff. 
so I knew that this was going to be a hustle. I knew that that's like wanting to be a successful musician is almost like wanting to be an Olympic athlete, right? Like yeah. millions want it, only a few get it. So my whole approach to life ever since I was 14 was to like constantly preparing myself for a more difficult future, which means never choosing the luxurious choice, mm -hmm. always like choosing to be deliberately hard on yourself to, to keep yourself tough. So that even if times are not tough right now, just assume that they're going to be tougher in the future and you want to be prepared. So this is just kind of like my approach to life all the way from the age of 14 until whatever. Mm -hmm. Like this is just how I approached life. Maybe because I wanted to be a successful musician or maybe, you know, back to the nature versus nature DNA thing. Maybe this was just in my DNA to approach life like this, right? Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't even be blaming the fact that I wanted to be a musician, but I, this is how I approached life. But I never knew anybody else that approached life like this. I was just the weird one. In fact, that's why, actually, it's a big reason why when Tim Ferriss and I met back in 2008 in San Francisco, we just had like some random acquaintance. We just like met up for coffee and just like totally hit it off. Yeah. I think because of this thing, like we, we just looked at each other weird, like, oh, you're like that too? Huh. Weird. Like, <laughs> I've never met anybody else who thinks of that too. Like I do. So we just had this weird approach to life in common. So later, I, I mean, I was like 40 when I read a book about stoicism and I, I had kind of avoided it because it just sounded like boring ancient Greek stuff. Yeah. Um, but a few people recommended this book and it had a whole bunch of five-star reviews and I was like, okay, I'll check it out. It was <laughs> called The Guide to the Good Life by William Irvine, I think. Mm -hmm. And it was like, reading that book, I was like, whoa! It's like, Holy here's crap. everything like I've this, ever known. My whole kind of like ad hoc <laughs> approach to life is like a philosophy mm -hmm. that, that these like ancients came up with 2000 years ago and it has a name with an ism on the end. <laughs> this is so weird. Like I thought this was just me, like Derek's weird approach to life. Mm -hmm. and it turns out it's, it's an ism, but you know, you asked like, how did it feel realizing I hadn't created something new, but I was, well, I wasn't trying to create something thing new you know i just thought that i was the only weirdo yeah who approaches life this way so to find out that there are other ancient weirdos who pioneered it <laughs> and that it's supposedly like a desirable way to be well that was just kind of nice yeah uh, but of that yoga example we gave earlier like i don't just like buy in to a group or like an ism i don't subscribe <laughs> to to isms just because i believe something um yeah doesn't mean i need to buy into the whole thing right so even with Stoicism, I ended up reading maybe two or three books about it. And I mm -hmm. got some good insights, but that's that. I'm not going to go say, I am a Stoic. <laughs> no, yeah. I believe in Stoicism. It's like, no, it's, I'm not saying this is my life philosophy. I, I think that I agree with a lot of it, but I don't need to buy all the way in, you know? Mm -hmm. I, I agree. I, it's funny that you, you, you taught like you're just the only weirdo. And it wasn't, it wasn't until I listened to podcasts, like it's like you mentioned Tim Ferriss that he kept talking about it. And I'm like, Oh, I guess I do kind of believe in like, like this thing. And I'm like, huh, I, can't, I didn't know it had a name because it, it does seem right. like you have some sort of itch or natural orientation to believe a certain way that just kind of lends itself to being 
a thing, right? Or be named by somebody yeah. else. So yeah, I, I totally understand that. It's it's quite interesting when you kind of discover it and like, oh, I guess this is how I am, but it's also got a name or like a <laughs> a thought <Yeah>. process. <laughs> it is a little strange. And we're getting close to the end here. And the it's honestly been a huge through line for this entire conversation. And you mentioned it just there is just being able to keep yourself from holding your beliefs too tightly. I think that's such a huge, huge thing to be able to, to check yourself on. And, and it sounds like this entire conversation is one to do that for all things you do, but also for, you know, jumpstarting creativity and curiosity. So use that as a closing thought, basically. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, no, I mean, I, 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 I not only do I not hold on too tightly to my views, I think I what would you say? I like I hold on too loosely. <laughs> <laughs> I I think I'm extremely disloyal to my past self. Mm-hmm. Like almost to a fault. When I had employees at my company, they found it annoying. Sometimes they'd yell at me for like changing my mind. Mm. I'm like, well, that's what learning is. Like, <laughs> what am I going to do? Like, I just feel that whenever I learn more, I update my worldview. Like, sometimes I'm, whether it's just through reflecting or reading a book or something like that, at some point, I learn something that gives me a new perspective on something I've been doing before. So even if it invalidates everything I've ever said or done in the past, that's fine. Like, I don't mind. I don't care if people think I'm flaky. I could loudly announce that I, well, you know, like at the beginning of our call, we talked about the, how I lived on the beach in Santa Monica and I had no interest in travel. Mm -hmm. And I was like, travel? What are you nuts? Why would I travel? I live in Santa Monica, California, best place in the whole world. Why would I ever want to be anywhere else? (laughs) You know, six months later, I was just like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to leave America and never come back. Like, this is <laughs> just, some, it's like I learned if it um, is the opposite of everything I've ever said, that's fine. Uh, in fact, I think it's pretty cool. You know, that, that means that I'm learning and changing and yeah. that's ideal. So I think we all have our value system, right? Like, so some people strongly value loyalty, like loyalty to their country, loyalty to their neighborhood even loyalty to their beliefs. I've stated my position loyalty system is such that loyalty is near the bottom. Uh, for everyone, you know, you decide where to put it. I'm yeah. very loyal to my kid, for example. I'm loyal to the core to my kid. I'm not going to change my mind about him or give up <laughs> on it. But, you know, you, you, you're very, very judicious with where you decide to apply your loyalty. But anyway, but that's just me. Mm-hmm. Whereas on the other hand, it's like my top value or near the top for me to challenge my old beliefs and make sure that I'm not stuck with some old beliefs out of habit. You know, So I'm constantly taking things that I believe, trying to replace it with a question mark just to see. Like, mm-hmm. you know, take anything that I, I would put as a belief statement, right? Like write your, write down your top 10 list of beliefs, what you think is important in the world. And now put a question mark at the end of them. <laughs> yeah. Or caveat. Ask yourself if you can <laughs> see, yeah. Can, can you see the other point of view? Can you see a world where that's not true? Mm-hmm. Where in fact the opposite is true. And to me, maybe I just, I enjoy thought experiments. I find, I find it very exciting 
to consider that the opposite of what I believed yesterday might in fact be true. That's, that's like, mm-hmm. it's like going on a journey just in your head. <laughs> yeah. You know? So yeah, I guess that's a fine place to end a conversation. Yeah. Thanks, Eric. That's awesome. I, you know, I like to, I like to describe you as it's hard to describe you, but I've been talking to some people and I'm like, he's like a philosopher, poet, musician. I don't know. It's, it's weird. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, it, it just, you just gotta just random. Yeah. I'm just like at large dude. Yeah. It's awesome. And thanks for doing this and giving your undivided attention and, all of that. And you've already mentioned where people can connect with you, but if you want to reiterate real quick. Yeah, just go to, you know, as you could tell by my whole rant about tech independence and not depending on other companies and all that, like just mm-hmm. go to Sivers.org, S-I-V-E-R-S.org. That's my website and everything I ever publish is there. All, even my tweets, I put them on my website first and then echo them to Twitter if I feel like it. But point is, there's a big link there that says contact me. So anybody listening here, drop a line and say hello. Awesome. Thanks, Derek. Thanks, Eric. I want to take a quick second and talk about how you can support our show. I believe this is the most honest way that I can connect with you, the listener, and put it in front of everyone. You can support our show for as little as 99 cents a month. We release four podcasts a month, all at an average length of about an hour. That means you are supporting us at just 25 cents an hour. That's a, that's cheaper than the dollar menu. I think it's safe to say that we provide more value than that. And if you learn anything from our content, please consider becoming a supporter today with the link in the description of any episode or on the website at feedingcuriosity.net. And with that, thanks for listening and please enjoy the show. You just listened to an episode of Feeding Curiosity. Thank you all for listening and tuning in. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a like, subscribe, go check out the website over at feedingcuriosity.net and all the other things that we're doing there. And once again, thank you all for tuning in and we will see you in the next episode.